Amen. I do hope that you hear from the Lord today uh, through his word as Phil just prayed. If you have your Bible today, I want to invite you to take it right now and open it up to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, that's where we're going to be for our sermon text today. And as you're turning there, I just want to reiterate a warm welcome to everybody who's come today, especially those of you who are new. Thank you for gathering with us, whether you're here in the auditorium or in one of the overflow areas or listening to this message online. We are blessed uh, that you have uh, joined us today. Um, and especially that you joined us today on this uh, Super Bowl Sunday. Thank you for coming out. Okay, uh, let me just ask it. My, my, my son Johnny said I had to ask a, a Super Bowl question or make a, a Super Bowl comment. So this is for Johnny. All right, so first of all, uh, any, any Chiefs fans in the house? All right, Jason Shell's waves in a hat. That's like the new version of the hanky wave right there. Okay, Jason Shell. All right, anybody 49ers fans? All right, now... Okay, so like half and half, like everybody else, you should cheer for the 49ers. Brock Purdy's a Christian, okay? We got to cheer for these guys. All right, um, the, uh, who, and uh, let, me, let me say it this way. Who really doesn't care about the 49ers or the Chiefs? You just want to get into God's word, right? There we go, okay. All right. Jesus Duke, everybody, you guys got it. Okay, uh, I got a text message from a guy in our church named Sean yesterday, and uh, he sent me this little meme picture, and here's what it said. He said, you should be at least as excited about church as you are as the Super Bowl. So every time your pastor makes a good point on Sunday, go pour Gatorade over his head. <laughs> all right? So I uh, thought that was awesome. Please save all your Gatorade to the end of the service. All right. Uh, we're going to get into Genesis today. I'm excited to get into Genesis with you. Let me start out with some basic reminders about the book of Genesis. Uh, Genesis was written by Moses. Genesis uh, was really originally part of a much larger book, a big book that we now understand to be subdivided into five books called Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And the book of Genesis is really given to us um, because it's our book of origins. It tells us about the origins of many things, right? It tells us about the origins of the universe and the origins of our earth and the world we live in. It, Tells us about the origins of mankind and our sin and the origins of how God deals with mankind and deals with our sin. It tells us about the origin of languages and the origin of nations. It tells us about the origin of the people of Israel, of God's covenant promises to them, and ultimately of the redemptive plan of God that leads us to Jesus. All of it finds its origins in Genesis. We have to remember that when God had Moses write this down, he had Moses write it down for the record of the Hebrew children, God's people. They were, they were coming out of hundreds of years of enslavement to the Egyptians. They're coming out of that Egyptian culture, the Egyptian system. They would have been taught and indoctrinated with Egyptian teachings and pressured to believe the Egyptian teachings about their gods and their origins and what they believed about that. So in some ways, when God gave Moses the words to the book of Genesis, God was giving that to correct and to clarify the confused ideas that perhaps some of God's people would have had coming out of Egypt. And so, in other words, can I say it this way? Genesis is God setting the record straight about our origins, right? That's what Genesis is. Now, how applicable to the world in which we find ourselves today? We, too, uh, often live in a bit of confusion regarding our origins. Many of us have been indoctrinated by ungodly world 
teaching systems, uh, many worldly ideologies and philosophies, false teachings that have been passed down from generation to generation about the origin of things. So God gave us the book of Genesis for the same reason that he gave it to Moses and the Hebrew children, and that is to clarify and perhaps even correct our understandings of our origins. So today, we're going to look at the book of Genesis. We're going to look at the first 19 verses, verses 1 through verse 19 of chapter 1. And as we move through this passage, and as I speak today, here's the order in which I want to address you and speak through this message. I want us to talk, first of all, about history. What does Genesis 1, verses 1 through 19, what does it teach us historically? Then we'll talk about God. What do these verses teach us theologically? And then third, we'll talk about us. How do we apply this practically? That's how we're going to work through this section. And honestly, that's probably going to be the outline structure for the majority of sermons that you hear through our study of the book of Genesis. So let's start out with the first section. What does this text teach us historically? Let's begin in verse 1. Verse 1 says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So Right away, we're talking about the beginning of things here. We are talking uh, about the place of origin. Like, you can't go any further back than in the beginning. It's, you know, the, the things that we're going to read about are occurring before the world as we know it began, before time began. The thing that occurred in the beginning is that God created the heavens and the earth. Let's talk about the heavens and the earth for a moment. Um, when I say the word heavens. I wonder what you think about. You might think about the skies, or you might think about outer space, or you might think about streets of gold and crystal seas and, you know, the dwelling place of God. I don't know what you think about, but the Bible actually uses the word heavens to refer to all three parts, uh, all three locations, the skies around us, outer space, the dwelling place of God. The Bible uses heavens in all three regards. So as we read the word heavens, we have to figure out in context, what, what does the scripture mean by heavens? God created the heavens and the earth. We'll come back to what heavens means in just a minute. When we hear the word earth, I wonder what comes to your mind. If you're anything like me, you probably picture uh, one of those kind of satellite views from outer space where there's a circular globe and it's like the little blueberry floating in the blackness of outer space, right? That's kind of what we think of when we think of the earth here. But Here's what I want you to understand. The earth, as it's described here in Genesis 1 and verse 1 and 2, God, it didn't originally, initially exist in the way that we often think of it. I want you to see what it says in verse 2. Verse 2 says that the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. So this means that there was nothing in the earth. It was without form. It was void. It was empty. There were no people. There were no plants. There was no grass and trees, no bugs, no animals, no beings, no inhabitants, no continents and land structures the way we probably envision them now, no uh, bodies of water the way we envision them now. It was it says that it was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. So it was as if there's this earthly matter, right? Earthy matter there, and somehow there was water, dark water, 
covering it in the blackness and formless void in which it existed. And in the midst of that dark, black, void, empty existence, God speaks. And he speaks, and creation starts to occur. We learn more about how God created the world as we read the six days of creation in Genesis 1. So let's, we're going we're gonna to cover the first four days of creation in today's message. Let's look at what he did on the first day of creation. Verses 3 through 5 says this, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So on the first day, God created light. So I want you to understand that before verse 3, I mean, there was just darkness. Just darkness. Like, anybody afraid of the dark? Like, you can, can imagine what, the, praise the Lord, he created light, you know? I mean, this is good of him. It says that God created light. Usually, when we read that God created light, it, again, if you're anything like me, my mind can naturally go to thinking that this means God created sunlight, the light of the sun. But this is something different because the sun actually isn't created until day four of creation. So light is created here. God creates light, separates it from darkness, and it says that God called the light day and the darkness night. That was his creative work on the first day, evening and morning, the first day. Now, in the Hebrew language, the word day is the word yom, and yom is used repeatedly throughout the Old Testament scriptures. It, is, it means different things. It mainly Mainly when the word yom is used, is it's used to refer to a literal 24-hour period of, of a day. Sometimes, though, the word yom or day is used to refer to an extended period of days or a series of events that occur over time, such as when the scripture speaks of the day of the Lord, right? That that's a, it's a series of events that all occur over a time period. Sometimes when the scripture uses the word day, it's referring to the period of a 24-hour day where there is daylight. So there, the scripture uses yom in different ways. The normal use is, refer, is in reference to a 24-hour day. And it's interesting here that yom is used to say that, you know, there was evening, morning, and the first day. The challenge for us is that a 24-hour day, you know, kind of, we think of it in reference to a solar cycle, but in order to have a solar cycle, you got to have a sun. And the sun wasn't created until day four. So that poses a big question, like, should we understand these days to be literal 24-hour days or not? And I know a lot of you are asking that question. And I know some of you are very eager to see how Pastor Jason's going to answer this question. And I'm not going to answer it right now, so you're just going to have to deal with it. But I am going to address it down the road, and I'm going to tell you when we get to the application part of today's sermon how we're going to work our way through big questions like these. So hang tight. That's basically my way of ensuring that you stay till the end, and I'm glad you're here. So this is the first day. God created light. He separated it from the darkness. All right, on to the second day. Verses 6 through 8 say this, and God said, let there be an expanse, or if you are familiar with the King James Version like I was. This talks about the firmament, right? 
Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. There's the word heaven again. And there was evening and morning the second day. So God originally creates the waters, and then he creates this expanse. It's an area or a gap in between the waters. There are waters below, like waters on the earth that we would imagine right now. And then there are waters above, like clouds in the sky, you know, with rain. And so there's this gap in between. And of course, in that gap, we understand it to be the atmosphere where we have oxygen and the air that we breathe. And God knows that he's going to create everything else in the future days of creation. And those things are going to require oxygen. So he makes this atmosphere for them. So this is what happened on the second day of creation when God separated the waters below from the waters above. Now, verses 9 through 13 tell us about the third day of creation. It says in verse 9 that God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called the seas, and God saw that it was good. So here we have God creating the the plant life, and he starts to organize the earth in the future, in the next few verses, but as we read in verse 9 and 10, you know, you have to imagine that the, the waters under the heavens were gathered into one place and the dry land appeared, right? So this has to be some sort of massive cataclysmic event where kind of ground and earth starts to come out from the waters and the water starts to sink down into valleys. Like to me, I'm envisioning some massive earthquake type upheaval and it ends up with one giant body of water rather than seven different, you know, uh, all the different uh, continents and oceans. We have one massive body of water and we have one giant island (laughs) uh, kind of on this big bubble of water. Okay, now that's what's in my mind. I I can't convince you for sure that that's true. You're just getting glimpses into the weird brain of Jason Wing as I think this through. Verse 11, here's what it says. It says, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which, is, uh, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. Now, I have, the more I've thought about this, you guys, this creation of the vegetation and the plants and the, that would have been an amazing thing to see. I mean, you've got, I don't, it just struck me this week, like, before this happened, there's just like dirt. It's just earth, you know, maybe some clay, I don't know, maybe just dark earth, waters, Probably blue in some areas, muddied in the other areas where they bump up against the earth. But that's it, man. It's just plain, kind of boring and dull until day three happens and all of a sudden God speaks and all sorts of things appear and trees come up and flowers and plants and grass and fields and wheats and pines and oaks and vines and gardens and, you know, who else? You know, I mean, who knows what else was in there? And all of a sudden with all of this is going to come all the color of the world and the flowers and 
the different things that we look around the world and we enjoy the beauty of God's creation. At least, so I'm colorblind, so maybe some of you enjoy it more than I do, but I imagine, like, it's beautiful to me. I can't even imagine how beautiful it is to you, and I certainly can't imagine how beautiful it must have been in the beginning. But all sorts of beauty in God's creation of the plants and the trees and the vegetation in the world, you know, uh, I just think of myself like, Bob Ross was pretty good at drawing these things, you know. <laughs> but with God, you know, there's, there's no happy little accidents, <laughs> right? I mean, it's just making it all happen in this intentional, beautiful way. This is the creative work of God on day three. So then we move on to the fourth day of creation where God makes the celestial bodies. Verses 14 through 19 say this, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the, night, the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and morning the fourth day. So again, we've got this mention of the expanse in the heavens. And God's going to put the two great lights there. So this, now when he's talking about the heavens, we're talking about outer space, right? And God says, let there be lights in the expanse, sun, moon, and stars. And so it says he created these great lights in the expanse of the sky, in the expanse of outer, of outer space, that he did this for purposes. He says three purposes that he gives us. He did this to separate the day from the night. So he knows that on earth we're going to need the balance of day and night, of the times of activity, the times of rest. There's benefits to be able to have that day and night distinction. And so he gives two great lights, the sun and the moon, to give light on the earth, verse 17 says. And he says that the sun, the great light, rules the day, and the lesser light, the moon, rules the night. And isn't that true? Kind of like the sun and the moon have kind of provided this almost authority, if that's the right way to say it. It's the, uh, they have ruled the way in which the world operates, the earth on which we live. Think about, especially before electricity, like how many work days began when the sun rose? How many work days ended when the sun went down? How many wars ended when it got too dark to fight and, you know, began again when people could see each other? How, how many evenings have occurred when animals came out to hunt and find their prey at night and then went back to hiding again in the daytime? The sun and the moon, you know, they, they rule the daytime and the nighttime. God gave us the celestial bodies to separate the day from night. It also says that God gave us the sun and the moon for signs and seasons. So, the way in which God put the sun in the space and made the earth rotate around it and all of, you know, I'm not going to get into all the details, but you guys know how it works where all of a sudden now we have seasons on the earth, right? And I don't know about you, but like, I like the seasons. I'm glad we live in Ohio. We get to experience all four seasons. You go live someplace else, you don't really get to experience them fully the way we do, right? Fall is the best season. So it's un unarguable with me and one other person in the crowd who just gave me a woo, right? <laughs> but God gave us the celestial bodies for seasons. It also says that he gave us the celestial bodies for signs. What does that mean? Well, here's what it means. It means that God is 
going to reveal his, his work in the world through things that happen in the celestial bodies. So think about it like this. When Jesus Christ was born, how did the wise men find out where to go? They followed a star in the sky. Think about when Christ died on the cross. It says that the sun went dark for several hours. That in the end, Revelation chapter 6 and Luke 21 talk about in the end of time, like when God is kind of finalizing his judgment on the earth, that the sun will be darkened, the moon will become blood red, and stars will be cast down from the heavens. Right? These are signs of things that are happening in the world. God created the celestial beings for that. He also created the celestial, uh, the celestial bodies for a third reason. It says he did that for, uh, for days and for years. In other words, God intended us to use the sun, moon, and stars to be able to track time. So we would know what year it is. Anniversaries can be celebrated, feasts, festivals, all these things. We're able to, if we didn't really have this way of tracking time, we wouldn't be able to track history. Right? So God gave us the sun, moon, and stars for that purpose. And I love how it says that, you know, there's these three little words in verse, uh, verse 16. It says he gave the greater light to rule the day, the sun. He gave the lesser night to rule the night. That's the moon. And then there's like these three little words, and the stars. And just, just you know, no big deal, just, just the stars, you know, the whole Milky Way galaxy. Which is only like one of like, you know, a couple trillion galaxies. Like, and the stars. God just made those. Can you imagine like if the Hebrew children of Moses' day would have been able to have the like, telescopes and things that we have today that could see what that meant. Incredible. I feel like God sometimes just does these funny little things for us. Like, I'm doing something more than you can even imagine here. Anyways, sun, moon, and stars. That's day four of creation. And actually, next week, we're kind of going to stop there on our exploration of the text, but next week we're going to talk about how God created animals and man and uh, get into day five and six of creation. But today, We've got the first four days of creation. We've kind of went through the text and learned historically. But God didn't give us the Bible just to read the text for history. God gave us his word so that we can know him, right? The Bible is for us to know God. So what do we learn theologically? What does this text teach us about God? Oh, so many things that we learn theologically from this text. I wish I had time to kind of cover them all. But two outstanding things about God from these first 19 verses that I want to show you today. The first one is this. I want you to understand, God has eternally existed as Trinity. God has eternally existed as Trinity. His existence has been eternal. That's why verse 1 can say, in the beginning, God created. God was there at the beginning of the world as we know it, because he has eternally existed. In the beginning, God created. In the original Hebrew language, the word for God is the word Elohim. Elohim in Hebrew is actually a plural word. So we see that God in persons of the Trinity were all there involved in creation. The Trinity meaning tri-unity, three in one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all there in the beginning it helps us make sense when we read verse 2, which said that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters in the beginning. 
From other passages of Scripture, we realize that God the Son was there in the beginning when creation was occurring. Colossians chapter 1, for example, talks, uh, it's really a whole chapter written about the wonders and the beauty of Christ and the truth is about Christ. And here's what it says in Colossians 1 about Jesus Christ. It says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 and 3 says this, that in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom God also created the world. Right? Through the son, God created the world. Father, son, Holy Spirit involved in creation because the Trinity existed in the beginning. God existed before the creation of the world. He's existed eternally, which is why the Bible refers to him as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He always has been. He always will be. Over, as, as you go through the Christian life, oftentimes you'll hear people ask the question, well, if, if God made the world, who made God? And it's a reasonable question to ask, but the answer from Scripture is that no one made God. He has always been and always will be. God has eternally existed as Trinity. Here's the second main thing that I want you to see about God today from our text, and it's the obvious one. It's that God is the all-powerful creator of the world. He's the all-powerful creator of the world. This is who God is. We see the creative work of God in this text, that from nothing he can make something. This is called creation ex nihilo, out of nothing, something. God can do that. The best thing we can do as humans is take something and make it into something else. We can't make something out of nothing. God can do that. God made creation out of nothing. And the way he did it was that he spoke. He just said it. He brought this world into existence that way. The power of the word of God. Speaking the world into existence, it happened by the power of his words. God said, let there be light. God said, let there be an expanse. God said, let the waters gather together. God said, let there be lights in the heavens. God's word is powerful. He speaks, he creates, and he gives life. Our God is the all-powerful creator of the world. And when he speaks, we should understand that there is power in what he has said which is part of why we should cherish the word that he has given us in the scriptures. So, lots of more I could share about God, but I'll end right there. And I'll say this. Now let's bring it home to us. With this history in mind, with this theology in mind, how do we apply it to our lives practically? How does this apply to us practically? Right? Because we're not just to be hearers of the word, we're to be doers, we're... We're not just gaining information. This should result in some sort of transformation in our lives. So four things I want to share with you about how this should affect our lives practically as we move forward. First of all is this, guys. God intends for us to worship him as creator. All right? We are to worship him as creator. Our Bible says, in the beginning, God created. At minimum, we need to understand, like, we ourselves are not creators. We can take things that exist and make stuff 
organized and maybe improved, but we cannot make something out of nothing. God did. We are not God. He is creator. And because he is creator, all-powerful, authoritative over everything, then we humble ourselves and we worship him. We are to worship him as creator. In the beginning, God created. I know many people will say things like, yeah, maybe in the beginning there were cells, or maybe in the beginning there were masses or, or gases that existed in the world, but they won't say in the beginning God created. The problem with that is that if you remove God from the statement and you say like anything was there besides God, you, of course you have to ask the question, well, where did that come from? And when you answer, well, where did that come from? And when you answer, where did that come from? And so on and so forth, back and back, ad infinitum, until you finally come to this place that you have to conclude there must have been some first uncaused cause. And we believe that the God of the Bible is the uncaused cause. He is the eternally existent one, Father, Son, and Spirit, who created the world with the word of his mouth. Now, why don't people want to acknowledge that? Why don't people want to? Again, God has spoken in Scripture and has given us the answer. So Romans chapter 1 is all about this, right? Romans chapter 1 tells us. Romans chapter 1, just on your own, read the whole chapter later today, but just I'm going to draw out just a couple verses from Romans 1. Romans 1 verse 21 says, For although people, it's talking about humanity. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. It goes on to say in verse 25, Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. See, people don't accept God as creator because they don't want to honor him or give him thanks. When you honor someone, you recognize that they are worthy. They are in some way over you. They are, uh, they are worthy of kind of your humble acknowledgement of who they are. And people don't want to acknowledge that God is real or that God exists. And they certainly don't want to give him thanks. You know, why do we say thank you to people? Because we realize that somebody gave us something that we couldn't have had on our own. And people don't want to say God gave us this world, that God gave us this existence, that God gave us the air that we breathe and the heart that beats inside of our bodies, that God gave us life. People don't want to do that. Why? Because they are prideful. They want to worship the creature rather than the creator. Ultimately, it's because people worship ourselves. And this is the problem. Because if you started to recognize that there's a creator God who gave you life and he's worthy of all honor and glory, you'd have to submit your whole life to him. People don't want to do that. I hope you believe in the God of creation. I hope that you believe that he created the world. He created you. If you don't, here's the truth. If you don't accept creation, you're likely going to struggle with the rest of the Bible. But if you do accept creation, everything else kind of comes easy. So there's all these other things in the Bible that are mysterious, you know. We're going to talk about a talking serpent here in a couple weeks. Uh, we're going to talk about Floods that covered the earth. We're going to talk about seas that parted. 
You read the Bible, you talk about fish that swallowed human beings and then spat them back out and virgin births and signs and wonders and healings and supernatural events and people dying and rising from the dead. Listen, none of that is hard to believe if you believe in a God who can speak and the world exists. But all of it's going to be hard to believe if you don't accept God as creator. So worship God as the creator of the universe. Accept him as such, which ties right into the second application. Reject any theories that deny God as creator. If you're a believer and you trust that the Bible is God's word, that means you must reject any theories that deny God as creator. Many of you, many of us, most of our children grow up in a culture Many of them in education systems that teach the opposite of creation. They are taught that the world came to be by this evolutionary process, and then they're taught that this is absolute fact confirmed by science. The problem is, is that the theory of evolution doesn't even pass the test of the scientific method. Scientific method says things must include observations and hypotheses and predictions and then testing. First of all, nobody was able to observe, actually, the the formation of the world. Even if you grant the Big Bang, nobody was there to see it happen, and certainly no one has been able to test that theory and try to reproduce it. So the theory of evolution, listen to me, the theory of evolution may be called factual science, but just because somebody calls something that doesn't make it true. The truth is is that it doesn't even meet the standards of the basic scientific method. So don't buy the lie that evolution and the macroevolutionary process is scientific facts. People want to say it until you believe it. Be discerning. I think uh, the truth is that, I think that deep down most people know that it is illogical to believe that our complexly designed world, um, you know, came about without a designer. I I think people get it. I think they know that it is more logical to believe that our complex world must have had a designer. I think people know that in their hearts. I think they know that it's ridiculous to think that gases collided and suddenly a world and a universe came about. I don't think anybody would say, if I took my iPhone apart, put it in a box, and just left it be for ages to come, that suddenly an iPhone would create itself. How much more complex is the world than an iPhone? I mean, people know this. But here's the problem. People in our culture, they also know that most other influential people have accepted evolution. So if they want to be accepted by people they considered influential, then they have to accept evolution. And so they choose to be accepted by man rather than God. And I think that's the heart of it. I want to make it very clear to you To be a Christian and living the Christian life, it means that you will choose to place God above men. You must be willing to be rejected by men in order to follow Jesus. The Bible teaches clearly, here in Genesis and all throughout Scripture, that God created the world. So reject any theories that deny God as creator. Now, I know that most of you here would agree that God created the world. 
Yet some of you here will disagree on how God created the world. Many of you have different views on your thoughts and your beliefs about the hows of creation. You know, some are like gap theorists. There must have been a gap between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and that's when Satan was cast down from heaven, and there must have been a pre-Adamic human race, right? Some people are gap theorists. Other people are like, no, no, no. Some people, uh, they, they think, okay, um, is the earth young or old? You know, some people are like, yeah, the, the earth is thousands of years old. Some people are like, no, it's millions of years old. And they tie creation into their viewpoints. Some people believe that the days of creation were six literal 24-hour periods. Some people believe that they were extended periods of time. Look, I know that, I know that we're in a church with a whole bunch of people who believe different things about this. So how are we going to deal with it? A few things we're going to do to hopefully help us work through this. First of all, here's the first thing I'm going to do. I'm going to just tell you publicly up front that I hold a young earth view of creation, that I strongly lean toward a literal 24-hour view of the six days of creation, and most of our church leadership holds the same view as me, right? That's just telling you up front where we are. Now, the thing is, is that just because I say that's where we are, like, doesn't mean we have good reasons for that. So we need to explain the reasons. Why do we hold the views that we, view, that we hold? So two Sundays from now, on February 25th, you know, we're going to basically preach and teach through some of the most common questions from Genesis chapter 1. So we're going to cover things like, is there a gap of time between verse 1 and verse 2? Is the gap theory tenable? We're going to cover things like, Literal 24-hour days or not? Why, if, if we believe that, why do we believe we have good reason to believe that? There's going to be a lot of other questions that come out of next week's sermon that have to do with God creating man and animals and what about dinosaurs and babies before Adam and Eve and, you know, all sorts of other stuff that's going to come out. All right, so we're going to address all that out uh, on February 25th. So that's my little teaser to get you to come back, okay? So hopefully you will. But after we present our biblical rationale for the views that we hold, here's what I want you to do. I want you to study the Bible on your own. I don't want you to form your biblically-based conclusions and not feel like you just have to capitulate to the pressures of modern American culture. All right, study the Bible. Come to your conclusions. Make them biblical. And I know that several of us will probably end up with as best we can tell, biblically-based conclusions that are different with each other. So what do we do then? Here's the third practical takeaway for you. Handle your deferring views on creation with charity. Handle your deferring views on creation with charity. Guys, I just want to say, young earth, old earth, gap theory or not, these things, those are, those are important issues, and they all have kind of tangential things connected to them that are also important they are important issues, but I'll say this. They are not primary issues. We've taught here in the past about the difference between primary, secondary, and tertiary issues. Primary issues are things like, you must believe these if you want to be considered Christian. Essential. Secondary issues. Faithful Christians can disagree on them, but they will probably choose to fellowship in different churches based off of the importance of those views. Tertiary views are saying faithful Christians can disagree on them, but they're not really 
such a big deal that people would separate. You can live in the same church and still hold different viewpoints on tertiary things. So I want to be clear. Understanding God as creator is absolutely a primary issue. You must believe that in order to be in the realm of historic Orthodox Christianity. But old earth, young earth, creationism, guys, that's not a primary issue. True believers, born again, saved, forgiven, on their way to heaven because of Jesus, they can hold different views on old earth, young earth, and several other issues attached to this. So, yes, do your best to rightly divide and understand God's word. Come to your conclusions. Have solid reasons. Not just opinions, but solid biblical and logical reasons for where you are. But guys, let's not act like our beliefs about the age of the earth are on the same level as believing in Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, risen again for the forgiveness of your sins. They're not on the same level as if somebody who just trusted Christ for their forgiveness of their sins, but has been raised in evolutionary theory for their whole life. Do you think like in the moment of their conversion, they're going to fully understand creationism? No, it's not a primary issue. And regardless of your views on these creation-related matters, oh, guys, we must not carry ourselves with arrogance or pride. It is ungodly to belittle other believers who hold different conclusions than us. So I hope we are a church where young earthers and old earthers and people with deferring views on issues pertaining to creationism, I hope we are a church where we can agree to love each other well even when we disagree. I'm thinking of principles from Romans chapter 14 and 15 here. For Romans 14.1 says, do not quarrel over opinions. We waste so much time quarreling over opinions. Romans 14.19 says, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. In our conversations about this, are we really striving towards peace and upbuilding? Or are we just trying to win? Romans 15, verses 5 through 7 says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ welcomed you for the glory of God. So as we continue through Genesis and we discuss these things, let's handle our differing views on creation with love and charity in the name of Jesus Christ. Which ties into the last point that I want to share with you on a practical level. Guys, we need to remember that Genesis is ultimately about Jesus. Genesis is ultimately meant to lead us to Christ. Right? God's purpose in giving us Genesis is to introduce us to, it's like, the, it's like the first, it's like the front door into a world of understanding that is eventually, it's eventually meant to lead us to know Christ. So God, in this book of Genesis, God gives us this brief introduction to creation. Then he gives us a longer look into the problem of sin. And then he gives us an even longer look into his covenant promises and the people through which the Son of God, Jesus Christ the Messiah, is eventually born for the sake of the world. Genesis is meant to lead us to Christ. Even these first four days of creation are given to us so that we can understand what the Bible teaches about Jesus. Here's, here's what I mean. 
Guys, if, if we didn't understand stars, then we wouldn't understand what the Bible means when it says that Jesus is the bright morning star. If we didn't grasp plants and seeds, we wouldn't know what the Bible means when it says that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. If we didn't understand water, we wouldn't understand Jesus being the living water that if you drink of him, you will never thirst again. If we didn't understand light, then we wouldn't understand Jesus as the light of the world and we wouldn't know what scripture means when it says, God who said, let the light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Praise God that he gave us the first four days of creation so that we can understand better the scripture's teaching about Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, we stop now and we thank you for giving us this portion of your word and so many things in Genesis that are mysterious and make me curious. Lord, you are beyond us. I pray, Father, that you would let us settle and be at peace with understanding that there is mystery to you, that you, trans you are transcendent. And if we could understand you in every way, then you'd be a pretty small God. So, Lord, let us be okay with some mystery when it comes to your attributes and the way in which you created this vast world in which we live. Thank you that you, as the psalmist says, when I consider the stars, when I see your handiwork, I think to myself, what is man that you are mindful of us? Lord, why you would choose to set your love and affection on us in the midst of this vast world that you have made. It is a mystery, but it is a wonderful mystery. And I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you love everybody who's hearing your word today. And I pray, Lord, that you would incline our hearts to be humble, receptive, submissive worshipers of you. Thank you that you gave Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins so that we can be in a right relationship with you. It's in his name I pray. Amen.